Well, good morning. We're going to be in a minute in Galatians 5, and we're going to work through in three Sundays, three successive passages, which tell us the most important foundational things about what it really means to be a Christian by defining some of the errors and mistakes that can lead people astray. And uh, this, is, this is really profound foundational stuff which we're, we're going to work through. We'll come to Galatians 5 in a minute, but our story actually starts this morning in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. So let's trace it back as far as there. <coughs> it really was astonishing how the Spirit came on a, in a single day and swept through the city, thousands converted, and over the subsequent months, the church just got bigger and bigger and bigger all the way through the city, thousands and thousands of Jewish people coming to faith. And that is the story of the early part of the book of Acts until something very sudden happened. One of the most gifted leaders in the Jerusalem church was a man called Stephen, and he performed some astonishing miracles. It drew a lot of adverse attention from the religious authorities, and they took him under investigation and eventually um, at the end of that investigation, there was a great moment when they decided they couldn't stand it any longer listening to this story about Jesus. They hated it so much that they suddenly took him to the edge of the city and in an instant stoned him to death. The first Christian martyr. And on the very same day, that this happened. The enemies of the church gained courage and they thought, right, this is our moment. We're going to get this Nazarene sect, this Christian sect, out of Jerusalem, out of the country, out of our culture. And so they went house to house looking for the Christians and they said, out you go, we don't want you here. And they basically forced them out of the city, thousands of them. Hardly anyone stayed behind, just a few, <coughs> a few of the leaders. And over the next few months, these people scattered. Now, this is, this is a story that's like a 21st century story, if you think of the Middle East, isn't it? The same sort of things happen today. They scattered. They went to a place called Samaria. They started planting churches, and they just scattered further and further away from Jerusalem and Judea into the surrounding countries. They scattered outside all the Jewish territory entirely until... They ended up, a, a group of them ended up in a very big uh, Greek city called Antioch at the top of Syria. And they, they made a little church there and they started talking to all the Greek citizens nearby and they became believers and they started creating a really big church there. And they called up one of the leaders from Jerusalem who was left, his, his name was Barnabas, and he came and helped them. And he called another guy called Paul, he'd been converted on the Damascus Road but hadn't started his work yet, and they created this really, really big church in Antioch. Are you still with me, by the way? Yeah, can you see what's happening? And that was the first church that had all the different nations together that had ever existed. Wonderful. Thousands of people, very successful. One day the leaders were praying, and the Holy Spirit said, set apart from me Paul and Barnabas for the work I've called them to do which was basically to go and plant some other churches in what we now call Turkey. But a province that we're going to call today Galatia. 
So they spent a year or two traveling around in the southern part of Turkey, southern central Turkey, and they planted churches in all sorts of different cities and created little congregations and elders were appointed. And they went back to Antioch and said, wow, it's amazing. The Greeks and all the other nationalities and some of the Roman citizens, they're all becoming followers of Jesus. Absolutely fantastic. So Paul and Barnabas come back to Antioch. They've planted half a dozen really good churches and lots of others have been planted around them. And then something very sinister happens. About six months after they'd left these cities, they visited each one twice and they came back and instructed them. They went back to Antioch. They said, right, you carry on with the Christian life. You've got some leaders who are learning how to lead. About six months, this is my estimate, it's very approximate. Something began to happen in these churches. And I'm going to describe it to you in the following way. Imagine I am a Greek who lives in one of these towns. Let's describe it as Iconium. That was one of the cities. I come from Iconium. This crazy Jew called Paul turns up with Barnabas, preaches an amazing message. I've always thought the God of Israel is probably the true God, but I never really knew quite how. But suddenly I hear about a guy called Jesus who turns out to be the Messiah. He died for sins. He rose again from the dead, and I can be forgiven from my sins, and I don't have to go to the temple anymore, and I believe. It didn't happen quite as quickly as that. And I am coming into the church, and I suddenly feel free from sin. I've heard about faith justifying me, I'm on cloud nine. Next few months, I think, fantastic. I found the truth. My sins have been washed away. This Jewish religion's really produced some great goods at the end of the line. This amazing guy called Jesus came. Never heard of him before, but it appears he rose from the dead. Absolutely fantastic, telling all my friends and neighbors. Six months later, I'm sitting in that church. Paul's gone back to Antioch with Barnabas. Great guy, I wish he'd stayed a bit longer. There were so many more things I wanted to ask him, but he always seemed to be in a hurry. The leaders are there. Some guy stands up, Jewish guy, and says, uh, can I preach this morning? And the leaders say yes. And I'm sitting back thinking, oh, what am I going to learn today? And you never guess what this guy says. He says, by the way, you Gentiles, Greeks, Romans, and all the other nations, pointing at me and all my friends who've joined the church in the last six months. By the way, if you want to be a Christian, you've got to become a Jew first. I said, Paul never mentioned that. Oh, yes. We've come to substantiate Paul's truth and explain things a bit more fully. There's a few things he didn't fill you in on. And, I th and, I'm, and I'm sitting there in the congregation, he's preaching this, and I'm thinking, what does it mean to become a Jew? Why do I have to become a Jew? Great religion, great history, great heritage. But we're on to something new now, and all the nations are together in the church. What's the problem? Oh, we have a law. And there's a few things in that law that you new Christians are going to have to obey. And the first one, I don't wish to offend anyone here, a little bit eye-watering, circumcision. Now, I'm a Gentile. I've heard of this thing that the Jews do with their male children on the eighth day. 
But Paul never mentioned that to me. What on earth is going on? You've got to become a Jew if you want to become a Christian. And not only that, painful enough, we've got some dietary laws in Judaism. Oh, really? What are they? No pork, but... I like my bacon butties. No camel. No crabs. And other sea creatures that don't have fins, don't swim with fins. Straight out of Leviticus, by the way. So I've got to be circumcised. I've got to change my diet. Oh, and you're not allowed to work on Saturday. Yeah, but my business is open every Saturday. It's a big, big, big trading day here in Iconia. No, you can't, you can't work. You'll have, to, you'll have to hand your business over to someone else because you've got to send, spend a day of rest. Oh, and by the way, you need to save up money once a year and go up to Jerusalem for one of their festivals. And so this guy's preaching in the church that Paul founded six months ago and he's reinterpreting the message. And I am listening with my other Greek friends thinking, something funny about this. And then I notice at the end of the meeting, being completely confused, that this guy's having an argument with the elders of the church, and they're saying, well, Paul never said this. And he said, well, Paul... Paul didn't, you know, Paul, if he'd been here a bit longer, he would have told you that there's more rules and regulations. These Gentiles, they've got to become Jews before they become Christians. Now, are you with me so far? So Paul is in Antioch. What does he think about this? Well, you're going to find out in a minute. He uses some fairly choice language to deal with this issue. One of the first instincts Paul ever had when there was a problem coming up was to put pen to paper. And by the way, it wasn't him writing, it was a, someone writing for him on a parchment while he dictated. Now, it's wonderful when you're dictating because you can get really animated. And if you've got really strong emotions, you can express them as you're dictating. The other person's just there scribing away. And this is what he says in an earlier passage. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to life in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preached to you, let them be under God's curse. Are you getting the message? As I've said already, I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than the one that you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Did he mince his words? Paul was in the battle of his life for the message that he had been given. Where had he been given it? 
on the Damascus Road. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached is not of human origin. It did, I did not receive it from any man, nor as I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Paul said, look, whatever anyone else, whatever anyone else says, they're wrong. I received this message from Jesus himself. I was called to be an apostle. I have the authority to preach this revolutionary message, not only to Jews, but to every single nation of the world, and I'm going to carry on doing it, and I want you to stay with the truth. Galatians 3, verse 1, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you have heard? Anyway, to get the flavor of Galatians. So Paul is writing a circular letter to the very churches I've just described, which you can see described in Acts 13 to 15 if you want to, uh, uh, and 14 if you want to actually look at the narrative. Okay, back to me and my church in Iconium. So I watched this controversy going on, and I realized that a church split is coming up soon. Because arguments are breaking out every single week about what it really means to believe in Jesus. The leaders are saying one thing. Other people who seem to be quite clever are saying something else. They're opening up Old Testament verses. They're arguing. They're batting forward. I'm feeling very, very insecure until one day a few months later, great news. The leader of the church, who's had a bit of a rough time in the last few months because there have been such big arguments, he stands up and he said, brothers and sisters, no preaching this morning. We've had a letter from Paul. Great way out of preaching, by the way. Just get a letter from Paul. It keeps you busy for a long time. And what we're going to do is we're going to read it out loud. Literacy levels were fairly low in those days. And the letters of the New Testament were designed to be read aloud. So I'm sitting there thinking, oh, thank goodness for that. Come on, Paul. Give us the truth. I'm confused. I thought I was free. But now I feel under this heavy weight. I feel as though something is wrong in me, but I don't know if it's in me or this odd teaching I'm receiving. I don't understand this Jewish law. I can't, I can't read Greek very well to go into the Old Testament translation. I certainly can't read Hebrew. I don't understand what they're talking about. Please, Paul, help me. I'm sitting there in the congregation, and they start reading Galatians. And then we get to chapter 5, which is our passage, which I'm going to read to you. I'm not going to put the words up on the screen quite yet, because I want you to listen to it as if you were that first century Greek convert that I'm imagining myself to be. Can you imagine that? Who's been in a really, really turbulent situation, not really knowing what the truth is anymore. Had some amazing experiences of God, but then you just get confused by conflicting teaching. And this is what Paul says in, in Galatians 5. And by the way, it ends up in an even more eye-watering statement than the one about circumcision. Just be warned, okay? There's a health warning on this text. 
okay? And he's sarcastic, he's using hyperbole, but I'm not going to dumb down what he says. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and don't let yourself be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he's obligated to obey the whole law. By the way, over 600 commands. You're trying to be justified by the law, and you be, you've been, then you've been alienated from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope for in Christ Jesus. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith, expressing itself through love. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? What kind of persuasion does not come from the one who, who calls you? A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I'm confident in the Lord that you'll take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever he may be, will have to pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they'd go the whole way and emasculate themselves. I did give you a warning. Hyperbole. Sarcasm. So what are we to make of this? The first verse is really important. It's coming up on the screen now. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Now, what has Christ set you free from? He sets you free from the power of sin to control your life, but also from the human tendency to legalism that is endemic in every single culture in the world. And that legalism means the human tendency to believe that to get a right relationship with God, we are going to make a contribution. And the astonishing thing about the gospel, which Paul describes later on as the offense of the cross, is that we can make no contribution whatsoever to our salvation. The offense of the cross to all societies, particularly to Jewish society in this context, but it applies in many other ways, is we can make no contribution to our salvation whatsoever. Therefore, people don't come in at the beginning at a higher level or a lower level. There's no sin that can't be forgiven. There's no past that can't be reformed. There's no person that can't be transformed because it really doesn't depend on us. And Paul preached this from the absolute depth of his heart. Don't start thinking that your faith is actually partly 
to do with the merit that you brought into that situation, your religious background or your religious works and anything you do after you've been saved is not going to gain you a place in heaven. It's only going to gain you accolades when you get there. Because when we arrive at the gate of judgment of heaven, what matters is, is your name in the book. And there aren't some names in red ink and blue ink and black ink and green ink. It's just your name. And it's just his blood. And it's just faith. Now, this faith is not just ticking box. It's a faith which starts with repentance. And part of the repentance is to renounce any sense that you're making a contribution to your salvation to say, no, I'm not. I come without a plea. And this legalism was confusing people. So they were losing sight of this reality. And Paul wasn't going to tolerate that for a minute. The next slide gives the key verses I've just read, which talk about the danger of mixing the gospel with any form of legalism. They are in fundamental contradiction. The Galatians have stopped running a good race. The little leaven of legalism is working through the whole church, confusing people and diverting them. They've stopped running the race. They're somehow or other trying to please God. They're losing confidence that he's justified them. So I want to come back to you, all of you, and say, look, your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life if you're a believer today because you repented and you believed and because Jesus' death is a sufficiently great price to pay for every single sin, past, present, and future. Now, let's move on just for a second. So the key truths of the gospel, Paul compresses again into two amazing verses in the middle, verses 5 and 6, which are coming up on the screen. For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. There's some key words here. Faith, which leads to the gift of the Spirit. Now here's the key. This is what the legalists don't have. It's the understanding that the thing that changes us and makes us more like God wants us to be is not rules and regulations. It is actually the indwelling presence of the Spirit in our lives, which is a creative, active reality every single day. And in the next talk, I'll explain that in a way that's probably deeper and more precise than you may have heard before. Because without an understanding of that alongside this, we haven't got the whole picture. Faith 
in the Spirit. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Faith has to express itself. It does lead to actions, but not actions that are constrained primarily by a legalistic mentality. And verses 11 and 12 tell us unambiguously that legalism is an enemy of the Christian faith. Paul describes the gospel as an offense. My experience of life is that still today, the Christian gospel is an offense. It's an offense to people who don't believe in God in a different kind of a way. And it's an offense to every other different religious mindset because if you actually analyze any religious system outside true Christianity, you find ultimately it is based on legalism in one form or another, a series of rules and regulations that are going to make you more acceptable to the divinity or deity worshipped or suggested. So Christianity can never, ever be described as one of many religions in the world. It is unique for many reasons. But the one I want to emphasize today is this particular reason. It does not have a legalistic framework for entry into the kingdom or living in the kingdom. Some final reflections. Let's put up the next slide. One clarification, in case you misunderstand me. Paul was not suggesting that we, sh we don't need to obey the applicable teachings of the New Testament, by the way. He was saying, don't bring the Old Testament in and don't bring human cultural rules in. The applicable teachings of the New Testament are not a legalistic system. They are examples of the way the Spirit leads us as believers, and I will explain that more fully next week. That's an important clarification. But humans have this tendency to create um, our own rules and regulations, and Paul is arguing very strongly against that. The second thing I want to say is that I believe that legalism is an issue in every culture. And there are a number of reasons for that. The first is that as a result of sin, human beings are naturally proud. And I use that not in the formal sense of acting proudly, but self-reliant. We naturally default to this view that somehow or other we are shaping reality around us and we need to shape our relationship with God. And that is challenged by the gospel. Secondly, we bring a lot of personal baggage into our faith. When we become a believer, if we have a personal history where we don't understand what approval and love in primary relationships really is, we will always tend to project on God this view that somehow or other he's always looking for more than I can give and he doesn't really approve of me and we project from our human experience onto the divine. And so comes the process of sanctification where we need to deal with 
the absent father, the critical teacher, the judgmental mother, the abuser, the conditional love that we received in our primary relationships. They condition us and they give us a tendency towards legalism. And that's a journey we're all on to deal with personal baggage and also to deal with things that are going on in our own culture. I've shared it once before some years ago. Here's a, an example I'd like to give you from the culture of Ukraine. The problem of alcohol and alcoholism in Eastern Europe and in Ukraine, as an example, is simply gigantic. It's a social catastrophe, far bigger than in this country, although it's a big issue here too. And so some churches took the view, if you become a believer, you have to become teetotal because they were wrestling with alcoholism and alcohol dependency. When I first went over to Ukraine many years ago, all the churches we met were strictly teetotal. The leaders, the members, a condition of membership was being teetotal because they were wrestling with alcoholism all the time. We then taught them the doctrines of grace, taught them about legalism from passages like this, and recognized the severity of the issue. But one day I remember a really poignant moment when I arrived in Ukraine. We'd had lots of discussions about this issue. One of the pastors there invited me and my colleagues to his house, and then he opened up his fridge, and he said, we're having a meal together tonight. And in the fridge, was a bottle of champagne. And he said, I'm no longer under the law. Now, he didn't like alcohol particularly, and he didn't recommend the drinking of alcohol particularly, but he realized that he created a law to try and overcome human weakness. What he needed to do as an alternative was to help people to receive the power of the Spirit in much more tangible ways and to have a better therapy for people who are under that particular condition because the law wasn't making the problem any better. It was a poignant moment where he'd overreacted to a genuine problem, absolutely genuine and created a law, but the law is never strong, strong enough to change the human heart. Even for years after that, I was very reluctant to drink alcohol in those churches because of the sensitivity. But I realized that they were understanding how in their culture that could become a law, a legalistic way of thinking. On the 31st of October this year, we celebrate 500 years of the Reformation. <coughs> and on that day, 31st of October 1517, as far as we know, a Catholic monk in one of the German provinces called Martin Luther, who was also an academic and a professor of, of moral philosophy, he put a document on the door of his church in his city called Wittenberg in eastern Germany today. 
I visited the place and visited the door as a matter of interest, just to get the feel of it. And he put on the door of the church a document which is called the 95 Theses. And he basically said the Catholic Church has become legalistic. We no longer preach the gospel of justification by faith. We are preaching that the Pope can forgive sins and that he does it through selling documents to sign documents to individual people described as an indulgence whereby your sins are forgiven because you pay to the Pope's agent a fee. And Martin Luther said categorically, this is legalism. His 95 theses were translated into many languages quickly, including English, and printed across the European world. And that moment triggered the Reformation. And the Reformation triggered the recovery of this doctrine. Martin Luther was more influenced by Galatians and also the book of Romans than by any other part of the New Testament. And what he saw there is the pure and simple doctrine, justification by faith alone. By God's grace alone. No additions. You can't add without corrupting. We stand in that tradition of Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, and all the other reformers who had a huge influence in our own country and in many other countries in Europe. It happens to be 500 years this year. My final point, I need to see you here next week. Forget your holidays and bank holidays and all those things because there's so much more to tell you about the Spirit. Because I haven't told you the whole thing. You could go away from here thinking, yeah, I'm justified by faith, but I don't know how to access that power. And Paul knows that you're thinking that. And he knew that those guys sitting there receiving the letter in that church in Iconium or wherever they happen to be, like I imagined myself to be in the early part of this talk, were thinking, okay, Paul, that's great, but what next? What is the power? We heard you speak about it briefly when you were here, but we didn't really get the whole truth of it. Can you please fill it out? Yeah, no problem. That's the next passage. How do we live by the Spirit? How are we led by the Spirit? How does the fruit of the Spirit manifest in our lives? Well, the first thing is you've got to clear away all this legalism. Root it out. And Paul is rooting it out, but he's not going to leave people high and dry. He's going to explain the other miraculous dimension of the Christian faith. Not just what Christ did, but what the Spirit does. One of the great hymn writers of the English language was Isaac Watts. 
in a moment, we're going to sing one of his great hymns. Before the band come, I just want Hilary to put up the first verse, because I want you to reflect on this. If you can find it for me, Hilary. Do you know this one? I want you to think of the second half of this verse, particularly. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Legalism has pride in it. You have to root it out. Isaac Watts saw the gospel with transparent clarity. I will never contribute anything to my salvation. No sacrament, no religious duty, no prayer routine. They may help in a secondary sense. I bring nothing to the foot of the cross. But you can't live a fruitful life un unless you stay at the foot of the cross every day. And so Paul said to the Galatians, come back to the foot of the cross. You've been deceived. Break the deception. Come back to the foot of the cross. Pour contempt on all the pride. And as we'll hear next week, receive the ongoing daily empowering of the Spirit. And I'll explain how we access that in very concrete terms next week. Let's have the band to the front immediately, please. And we're going to sing this together. Please stand.